It is so good to be back at Redemption City. We were here for seven years um, as a family. Uh, so we moved from Peru to the U.S. in 2013, and I think we found Redemption City in like March of 2014, and we're here until uh, last year. So it was, yeah, it is just awesome to be back. It's amazing to see so many new faces, people that I don't know. Um, it's, yeah, just great. Um, so I, yeah, I'm just thankful for the opportunity to be here and to be with you all and to really talk about something that I am passionate about. Um, this is my first time preaching with an iPad. I feel so strange. I'm used to paper. So hopefully this, this works. I think I got everything set up. Uh, all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for this uh, snowy, cold, slushy morning. Thank you for uh, the gift that it is. Um, thank you for so many people being here despite the, the weather. Thank you for the opportunity to think about uh, global ministries. Thank you for the worship, for singing songs to you, um, praising your name, praising the work that you have done in the world. Thank you for all the ways that you bless us, Lord. I pray that as we hear your word that you would speak, that it would be clear that you are speaking, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would help us to see what it is that you have for us this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And on day three, he said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. And then on day five, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, fill the waters and the seas Let the birds multiply on the earth. Then, day six, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The picture that we get in Genesis 1 and 2 is a, it's a picture of a world full of life. Right? God speaks and things happen. Light appears in the midst of darkness. Water is gathered together, and all of a sudden, dry land appears. The earth begins to sprout all types of vegetation. Sun, moon, and stars jump into place. The oceans and the skies are filled with fish and with birds. And then God blesses those living creatures and says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The land begins to to sprout forth, uh, to bring forth animals creeping things, and beasts. And then God makes humans. He says, I'm making humans in my own image. And he says, be fruitful. Multiply. 
Fill the earth. Throughout this story, time and time again, God emphasizes the reproductive abilities of everything that he creates. Right? The plants have seeds. They have fruit that have seeds in it, and it's repeated twice. The fish, the birds, and the animals are made according to their kind. Humans are made male and female, the two essential parties in any reproductive action. So then this, this implication is clarified with explicit commands time and time again to fill the skies, the seas, and the whole earth. From the very beginning, from creation, God's vision has been global. It has always been global. It includes all humans and all of creation. All humans and all of creation living in harmony and doing what we are created to do. Now, humans do have a unique role within creation, right? We know this. We're images that represent God. We were made to rule like God in this world over the created order. We're to represent God by ruling like God rules. So, So we look at Adam and Eve. They were planted in a garden. God said, tend and care for this garden with love. He told them to name the animals, to eat, to enjoy life, to make culture, to make art, to bring things to their fullest potential, to commune with God. He told them to have children and to teach them to do the same things. God makes this beautiful world and sets it on a trajectory. He makes this beautiful world and says, I want you to fill it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But as we all know, it doesn't all look so good now. That's not how things are today. Adam and Eve, as we know, the story goes, they rebel and they they set sin into action and this sin goes on to corrupt and infiltrate everything. And we all know what sin is because it's so familiar to us because it's so at home in our hearts. And all around the world, it's so evident. The next chapter in Genesis, the first murder happens. Chapter 4, that was close to the beginning. And it's not just any murder, it's a fratricide. It's a brother killing his brother. And then if we were to continue on reading the next several chapters, we'd see that sin continues to grow and get worse and to become more corrupt and, and, and to be more violent. It corrupts everything. So at some point, God says, I got to wipe the slate clean. We have to start again. And he sends a flood. But even after the flood, God's vision remains the same. After the flood, Noah and his family and all the animals that were in the ark come out of the ark. And God says to them, be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. God's vision hasn't changed. But sin hasn't ended either with the flood, right? Rather than spreading out and filling the earth, what do the humans do? Well, in Genesis 11, they come together, and this is what they say. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. 
the very thing that God commanded them to do time and time again, they're afraid of doing. Rather than spreading out and going to the rest of the world, ruling as God had told them to do with with love and care, they do the very opposite. They say, we can't go out. We have to huddle together. We want to keep God for ourselves in our city. So although God's vision has always been global, sin introduces a new complexity. Sin is this cosmic enemy to God's vision that has to be defeated. It's a power that at times seems like it has a life of its own. It corrupts individual people, and it corrupts the systems that individual people make. And as we see in the story of the Tower of Babel, which I just referenced, Sin has a tendency to curve us inward, to curve us inward and not outward, to look to ourselves and to our own needs, to commune with people like us, to assume that the way that we do things is the right way, the best way, and that other ways of doing things are wrong. Sin divides. It separates us into different groups that compete with each other. Sin breaks us apart. Sin is an enemy to that vision. And much of the Bible is pushing, it's all about pushing against that narrative. It's all about bringing people back together, people that aren't supposed to be together. So I'll give you three examples of this. The first one is is the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. When they come up out of Egypt in Exodus, it wasn't just one family or one racial and ethnic group that left Egypt. It wasn't. It says in, Genesis, in Exodus 12, I think it's verse 38, a mixed multitude went up with them. From the very beginning, these people were a combination of a bunch of different people. And what kept them together? What united them as a people? A common experience of salvation granted by God. In the New Testament, after Jesus has, has lived, he's died, he's resurrected, and he's ascended to heaven, the disciples do not know what to do. They are hiding in, in, in an upper room. They're praying. They're seeking the wisdom of God. They're confused. They're waiting. And then, boom, a loud sound. The Holy Spirit comes on, on them, and they begin speaking in other Languages And listen to what Acts 2, verses 5 through 12 says. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jew and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's a really long list. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and they're all amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Like, what the heck does this mean? If we were there, that's exactly what we would be asking. What is going on? All of us are hearing 
the works of God in our own language, in Spanish and in French and in Swahili and in every language. What is going on? There are people from every nation under heaven, it says, Jews and proselytes. God's building a new family, a new humanity made up of people from everywhere. One more example. John's vision in, in, uh, of the throne of God in Revelation. Zach already read part of what I was going to read, so you already know what's coming. This is what, this is what John sees and hears. We can't, we, can't, we can't hear this enough. We need to keep reminding ourselves of this. Revelation 5, 9 first. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people you, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. A people from across the entire globe. And they are united around what? What do they see? That one wasn't rhetorical. What do they see? They're united around salvation, yes. And what, what do they see? What In the vision, what is it that they see? The lamb, a slaughtered lamb. They're uniting around Jesus the slaughtered lamb who defeats that cosmic enemy, sin. They're clothed in white, purified from sin. These are the people that will inhabit the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth, and they'll finally live out God's global vision in its fullness, living in harmony and peace, living in communion with each other and with all of creation, including animals, there probably won't be snow. Sorry. That's not on my notes, but. To live in the eternal presence and radiance of God. That is God's global vision. That's God's global vision. And I wanted the first part of my, my sermon this morning, I wanted to trace that through the Bible because on the first ever Global Ministry Sunday at Redemption City Church, if nothing else, I want you to recognize that God's vision is global. It is global, and it's, it's always been global. We need to see that, and we actually need, we need to feel it. We need to feel it deep down inside. It's not just something that we think. We have to feel it. We need to see it and we need to feel it because it's not, it is not a Christian creation. Okay? It's, it's not an evangelical initiative or an Acts 29 goal or a Redemption City project. It's not something that we do. It's not something that we can, can do. God's global vision is an inescapable reality. It is a fact. 
It's a fact. And it began before sin entered the world, and it will come in its fullness when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in his fullness. We have to start there. That is where we start. But let's not stop there. It's great to see it. It's great to think about it. But why does it matter? How does it impact those of us that live in a particular place and not everywhere, like none of us? How does it impact us? What does that mean for us? So I want to I zero in on a passage this morning that describes that vision and that helps us understand a few implications of what, this, of what God's global vision can mean for us. And the passage is Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. So I'm going to organize the rest of the sermon around two questions, okay? The first one, it looks inward, and the second one looks outward. The first question is, how do we live as Christians in light of the inescapable reality of God's global vision, okay? I can't answer that question fully. That is, that would take, I'm not capable, but also it would take forever. Uh, But we'll, we'll talk about a few things. The second question, the one that looks outward, is this. What's the biggest issue facing the global church? And how, as a global family, might we respond? All right? So question number one. How do we live as Christians in light of the reality of God's global vision? Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that, he, and that we, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. So this is is a vision from the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century BCE. He speaks about days to come, some undefined time in the future that undoubtedly will come when Jesus returns and, and, and establishes his kingdom in its fullness. What, is, what does Isaiah see? What, is, what happens in these days to come? Well, the first thing is that the mountain of the Lord's house is established as the highest of mountains. In other words, the temple of Yahweh, which is, is located on the temple mount, which is already a mountain of, of a sort, it's going to be raised above all the other mountains. And it's now going to be visible. Everyone will be able to see it. Now, in the ancient world, temples were always, or almost always, on mountains because people believed that gods lived on mountains. Mountains were holy, so that's where you'd put your temple. But in this vision, Yahweh's mountain is supernaturally elevated above all the others so that everyone can see. What does that mean? Well, this is a politically and religiously charged vision. The nation of Israel is this tiny insignificant nation-state that, that exists between two international superpowers, 
On the one hand, you have Assyria, and on the other side, you have Egypt. And these international superpowers, on behalf of their gods, enjoyed dominating the world. They loved oppressing those little nation states that lived in between. Israel is, is a nothing in the ancient world. They're nothing. They're passed between uh, the powerful nations back and forth time and again. So in this vision, the religious and political order of the day is flipped on its head, right? Because if the Lord's mountain is higher than all of the other mountains, what does that mean? It means that all of the other gods are inferior. Yahweh's mountain is the highest. All the others lose. All other powers, whether they're political or religious, are at best subordinate. The Lord, the God of Jacob, is supreme, and everyone around the world sees it. And because they see it, what do they do? It says that the nations stream to Yahweh. The nations stream to Yahweh's temple. Now, the idea of streaming is it, in both English and in Hebrew, it is, it's, a, it's an aquatic metaphor, right? The people are flowing like a river. But there's something strange about this particular river, something that's out of the ordinary. Does anyone know what that might be? What is strange about this particular river? It's flowing uphill. That's exactly right. What is going on? Water does not flow uphill. It's going up to the highest mountain because there's an irresistible draw on this mountain that's overpowering the law of gravity and all the natural laws as we know them. And it's bringing people to the temple of the Lord. And then in verse 3, it says, many peoples shall come and say, and quick parentheses, many peoples refers not primarily to the number of people, but to the number of peoples or people groups. And what do they say? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This verse is just incredible. It speaks to the beautiful complexity of God's people. So these, these other people groups from other nations with different gods recognize the identity of a particular God the God of Jacob, or the God of Israel. Now, in the modern world, nowadays, uh, this is kind of probably weird for us because we don't, we're often skeptical of spiritual matters, and as Christians, we don't actually believe that there are other gods, right? Well, that's not how the ancient world worked. Every nation had their own God, and everyone knew, every nation believed in the gods of the other nations. There was no such thing as, as monotheists, or an atheism was not even an option. That wouldn't have been conceivable to people in the ancient world. So when the people recognize the Lord, the God of Jacob, they're accepting the God of another nation. They're recognizing that there's a historical relationship between this God, Yahweh, and a particular people, Israel. They're recognizing that the God of that nation is more powerful than the God of this nation. The God of that nation is supreme. As outsiders, 
as outsiders, they recognize that they have a need. And the need is to go to this God because this God has all the power. And what's the posture of these people as they're streaming to the mountain of the Lord? Well, it says that they come seeking to learn, desiring to know, to learn the way of Yahweh, how to walk in his paths. So in humility, they say, we need to go to the temple because if this God is supreme, we need to figure out how should we walk in this God's ways. We don't know how to do it. We can't do it because we're ignorant of it. So they stream uphill to the mountain of Yahweh. What they don't do is they don't co-op this God. They don't, they don't say this God, that God over there, is now going to be our God, and he's going to become, rather than the God of Jacob, he'll be the God of Assyria. No, they say, I'm going to that God as the God of Jacob, me as an Assyrian, the world international superpower. I go to the God of Jacob, this tiny insignificant nation. And I learn that God's ways. I don't teach that God my ways. They do it because they, they recognize they, they have to because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to please that God. They can't do it on their own, so they go and learn. And we see the result of this in verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up the sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So these different nations that stream to the Lord, first off, it says that they, they, they subordinate themselves to the rule of the Lord, and the Lord arbitrates in their in international relations. And then they take the tools of war and turn them into agricultural tools. And in light of the abundance of gun violence in the U.S. and even in, in Grand Rapids, and in light of the war in Ukraine, the idea of turning War tools into tools for the production of food, that is really good news. That is fantastic news. Nations won't even need to learn the art of war anymore. They won't be interested in the art of war anymore. That is, that is fantastic news. And sometimes we, we can be shielded from that. But this is a reality that a lot of people around the world face on a daily basis. Okay, so how does this vision actually help us today to live as Christians in light of the reality of God's global vision? There are three important implications. Three, there's probably many more, but I'm going to tell you about three. Here's the first one. The American church is not uniquely special. The American church is one out of the many peoples that come to the Lord. And we come as outsiders, alongside a bunch of other outsiders. We do not have a special seat at the table. We do not have a uniquely elevated role in God's plan. We, along with every other nation, have the amazing gift of streaming to the Lord. 
We get to come to the temple of Yahweh and learn what it means to live as humans. So when it comes to global missions or global ministries, that means we get to be learners as much as we get to be teachers. We get to meet brothers and sisters from around the globe that do things differently but still walk in the ways of the Lord. And we get to join them. It means that we don't impose the American way. Rather, together, we pursue God's ways. And this is really, really good news uh, for both global and local ministries. Right? Because what, pe- what, what brings people to God is not our hard work and our effort. Right? People are streaming uphill like this river that is going against gravity only because they see the Lord as the highest, the Lord's temple as the highest on the highest mountain, right? They see the God of Jacob as supreme. And as a result, they humbly come and seek to learn what it means to live as he, as Yahweh uh, wants. So that means we get to participate in this. We get to play a role but we don't save souls, for example. We, we can and we should testify about the one that does save souls. But it's not up to us to, to, to save anyone. The only person that can make a river flow upward is God. Right? So the first implication, the American church is not uniquely special, which leads to the second implication. There is no room for nationalism of any kind. And the passage could not be clearer on this. When those nations stream to the Lord's house, they are acknowledging the supremacy of Yahweh over any other power that would claim authority over them or over their nation. That includes religious and political powers. Right? It means a completely new allegiance that does not eliminate uh, national identities, but it does supersede them. When we come to the Lord, we become Christians first. We become Christians first. Now, the implications of that implication are countless. So I'm not going to talk about many of them. In fact, I only want to briefly just mention one. How should we think, for example, about immigration, given this reality? How should we think about immigration, considering that many of the immigrants that come from nations in the rest of the American continent are Christians, which means that we are part of the same family, And we're closer, we have a closer relationship to them as brothers and sisters in Christ than our non-Christian neighbors, even. How should we think about immigration? I'm not saying that it's simple or uncomplicated. My only point is that we should think about it. I don't have time to spill out any more potential implications, but what I want to say is that The global vision of God should make us think deeply 
about what it means to be American. The global vision of God should make us think deeply about our American identity. And the same goes for every other nation in the world, but we happen to be in the U.S. So what does it mean in light of God's global vision to be an American? That's your homework. All right, number three. The church of each nation has an important role to play. Because while no nation is uniquely special, the church of every nation is supremely special. And they're special in that they are given the gift of following God. Right? Notice in verse 4 that all of the peoples that stream to the mountain of Yahweh are still different nations. They come and learn the ways of the Lord, and yet there still are distinctions between them. And this resonates with all of the passages that I referenced before, right? The passages that talk about the ransomed people of God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. There is diversity amidst the unity of the church. So when we become Christians, we don't cease being American or Peruvian or white or black or Asian or Latino. Those remain essential and core aspects of who we are. And that means that even after learning the ways of the Lord, we will express those ways differently at times. What it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in one place is not exactly the same as what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in another place. There are differences. This is what one missiologist says. Every culture makes possible a certain approach to the gospel that brings to light certain of its aspects that is in other cultures cultures less visible or even hidden. Let me read that one more time. Every culture makes possible a certain approach to the gospel that brings to light certain of its aspects. That is in certain of its aspects, that is in other cultures, less visible or even hidden. So each culture is able to bring out aspects of the gospel, unique aspects. And what that means is that we need the church in every culture because we can learn from them. We can see the beauty of Jesus from a different angle. We can see what God is doing from a different place. The global church needs the national church of every nation. We have to work together and pursue the ways of God in unison. That brings me to the last question that we're going to answer today. What is the biggest issue facing the global church And how, as a global family, must we respond? And I know that's actually two questions, but (laughs) they're close together. (laughs) So, um, all right. So first off, the inescapable reality of the global vision of God, what we saw in Isaiah 2 and all the other passages, that is upon us. It is here. It is present, even now. So let me just give you a a few stats. Philip Jenkins, a historian, he said this. So in 1900, 
Africa had 10 million Christians representing about about 10% of the population. By 2000, this figure had grown to 360 million representing about half of the population. By 2050, Christianity will be chiefly the religion of Africa and the African diaspora. By then, there will be about 3 billion Christians in the world, and the population of those who will be white or non-Latino will be between one-fifth and one-sixth of the total. That's crazy. I mean, if you think about a large portion of, of Christian history, that is crazy. It's a massive shift in the demographics of the church. And a large part of the shift is because of massive growth. Mark Knoll adds the following. The number of practicing Christians in China may be approaching the number in the United States. Now, that was in 2009. So I'm pretty sure the number is increasing. I, at, at, at Wheaton, one of my classmates is, is a, he's a pastor uh, from China, mainland China. He's a pastor of a house church. I don't know about you all, but when, when, I, when I heard house church previously, I thought, of, I thought it meant church that, li- that, that uh, worshiped in a house or something. I don't know why I thought that. His house church has like a thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't meet in a house. They're not authorized by the communist government, but it's a thousand people church. And they are facing pretty intense persecution. It's, it's, it's kind of weird and hard to even imagine from where we sit, but I'll just say that the first semester that I was at Wheaton, one of the pastors at his church was taken and put in prison. He was the guy that did the media and put like video and audio and all that stuff, and, and, and he was put in prison for, I, don't, I can't remember how long, but it was a few months. And eventually they let him go. But they, they, they lived in fear of that type of thing happening. But let me just read that one more time. The number of practicing Christians in China may be approaching the number in the United States. In light of that reality of my, my friend, that's pretty crazy. A few more. Live bodies, I don't know why he wrote it like that, but that's what it says here. Live bodies, as opposed to dead bodies in church, are far more numerous in Kenya than in Canada. More, Christians, more Christian workers from Brazil are active in cross-cultural ministries outside their homelands than from Britain or from Canada. Last Sunday, more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. This past week, in Great Britain, at least, least 15,000 Christian foreign missionaries were hard at work evangelizing locals. Most of these missionaries are from Africa and Asia. The nations have come streaming to the Lord. And the numbers are just staggering. It is just insane. Most Christians now live in the majority world, right? So in East Asia, Africa, uh, and Latin America. And the rate of growth in these places is unbelievable. And yet, there's a serious problem. An organization called Training Leaders International names the problem like this. Around the world, there are 2.2 million evangelical churches. 85% are led by pastors with no formal theological training. 85% 
Now, here, around here, we take it for granted that pastors have studied, that they know their stuff, that if we ask them a theological question, they'll, they'll at least give us an educated response. That is not a reality for 85% of the churches. And the reason that this is a massive problem is that without training, it's impossible. It's, not, it's difficult, not impossible, but it is difficult for, for pastors to, to, to have theologically depth, to construct a strong foundation for their people, to help people understand the ways of the Lord. And as a result, people, and often pastors themselves, become vulnerable to false teaching and to false gospels. And one of the clearest evidences of this is that the prosperity gospel is growing massively around the world. The prosperity gospel tells people that if you have enough faith, God promises that you will be rich and healthy. But what happens with prosperity gospel is that the pastor or the leaders end up saying, hey, plant your seed of faith, which means give some money to church, and then they end up becoming rich. And often the people in those churches are poor. They're vulnerable. And as a result of the prosperity gospel, they end up becoming more poor and more vulnerable. Now, theological education won't fix that problem, but it will help. Right? When pastors and leaders are able to understand the truth of the gospel better, they'll be able to protect their people and themselves from the false gospels. Now, in the U.S., we have an embarrassment of riches in terms of theological education. On one road in Grand Rapids, we have three Christian colleges. And it's not to mention another seminary that's across the street from one of those seminaries. In Peru, by comparison, there are zero accredited theological institutions. A country of 30 million people. So there's a lot of need what is a pastor in Peru supposed to do? Where is he supposed to go, even when he desires theological education? What options does he have? What I think is amazing is that the needs of the global church and the strength of the U.S. church actually have lined up really well. Right? And that's why, for the last decade, I have been working on receiving training so that I can go back to Peru and, and share some of what I've learned. The point is, there's a desperate need for theological education around the world. How will the U.S. church respond? How will we respond? How will we respond? So this morning, I've tried to paint the picture of God's global vision. It began in creation, and it will be fulfilled when Jesus returns and we live in the middle of those two times. And we have before us an opportunity. We have before us great need. We have to live faithfully here and now in our place. And we have to recognize that we have brothers and sisters around the globe that are trying their best to do the same. So as we close our sermon, I just would ask that all of us pray that we seek God and say, what would you have us do as a church? How can we play our role as we stream uphill 
to the temple of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for your goodness. I thank you for the gift of coming to know you. I thank you for all the ways that you bless us, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes to the need around the world and to our own need, Lord, that we would see the sin in our hearts, the ways that uh, we, we fail you as, a, as individuals and as a church. Convict our hearts, Lord, and bring us to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.